Today we'll be in Psalm 15. So if you want to turn there, and then when you get there, uh, stand and join me in the reading of God's Word. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you heard tonight, we will be in Psalm uh, 15. And uh, for those of you joining us uh, tonight for the first time, uh, we will give a brief recap of what we've done for the last couple of weeks, just because it kind of frames our discussion through the Psalms. Um, in the summertime, we take a pause from our normal pattern of going through, in this case, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke on Sundays. And we take a time to go into the, the songs of Scripture, the Psalm, uh, which really is the, the lifeblood of the people of God. It, it teaches us about our emotions. It teaches us about our approach to the throne, how we engage God rightly in worship. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been in some of those introductory psalms we're trying to frame how we as believers ought to approach God as he is a holy God, uh, perfect and blameless in, in all his ways, and how we ought to live our lives in response to his, his holiness. So as a brief summary, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 kind of outline for us the foundation of, of approaching God in this way. Psalm 1 tells us that there is a, a way in this life that is blessed by God, assured by him that, that if you walk in this way, he will uphold you, he will bless you, he will multiply you, he will make you fruitful. And it is God who does all those things. And then Psalm 2 gives us the foundation for that. It is because Jesus sits on the throne. He is the one who can ensure that his justice is enacted rightly and that his grace is given truly because he is the one who's in charge of whether those things happen or don't happen. It's not as though there's a power struggle for the throne. Uh, Jesus is king. That's the conclusion of, of Psalm 2. And then uh, this week, we engage ourselves in Psalm 15, which asks the question, what about the rest of us who are unholy before God? How is it that we should approach God knowing that he is holy and there is a gap between us and him? And Psalm 15 not only asks the question, but it also answers the question and then gives a concluding assurance uh, for those who walk according to the ways the psalm lays out. In order to understand the layout of the psalm, you have to understand that people who identify with God as God's people, they, they live lives different from those who would not call themselves the people of God. And this is actually not a foreign thing to, to very many uh, places in the world. If you, if you practice anything for a certain period of time, and you identify yourself with any group for a certain period of time, it will begin to mark part of your identity. It will begin to demark you as unique, belonging to that group of people. Suppose you uh, knew someone in high school 
who knew when they graduated high school they weren't going to go to college like others were. They weren't going to go and start a job like others were. What they were going to do is they were going to enlist in the academy and become a firefighter. And, the, and, and over the course of life, let's say you lose track of them for eight, nine, ten years, and eventually you bump into them maybe in your hometown or in a grocery store or sometime later. If that person had been a firefighter for the last ten years, they would be different, markedly so, than when you met them in high school. Working a job like that will make someone sober, a little bit more uh, careful with how they value human life, a little bit more reserved about how they would joke about accidents and, and hurt that befalls people because they would have seen those things firsthand. They would be likely more disciplined because their job requires it. They would be used to situations that demand high stakes adrenaline. Now suppose all of those things are marked in this person, you meet them after 10 years, you could say that this person did not become a firefighter because they had all these qualities, but being a firefighter has produced a number of these qualities within them. A number of these qualities that over time just kind of bleed out into their life as a result of how they've lived for the last 10 years or so. Well, that's exactly what the psalm is getting at for those of us who worship God. It is not as though we can worship God because we are righteous. It is that because we worship God, he conforms us to righteousness. Because we follow after him, he makes us to be a people set apart so that we can rightly say that after having walked with God for a number of years, we should look different than people who do not profess to walk with God. And if you don't walk with God, you should also say it would not make sense for someone to say they walk with God and for that not to tangibly manifest itself in their life. They should look different because they claim to have this huge part of their identity that is different from what you would claim to have a huge part of your identity. It should look different on the ground as it plays out. One of the sad realities today is that Christians, in an effort to make Christianity appealing to the world, has tried to make Christianity seem like it's no different from anything else that's within the world. And the problem with that is that's one, not true, according to scripture. And two is that it really, it really doesn't make it any different or special to be a Christian. Such that today we can have people who say that they are believers, they follow God, and yet their life looks no different from those in the world. They, they participate in all the same pleasures. They engage in all the same sins. They do all of the same things across the world that the world does. And yet they would say, but I am a Christian marked by that. And I've been a Christian for a number of years now. Psalm 15 says that's, that's not a right profession of faith. That's not a true profession about who one is. So let's look at the psalm and see the questions it asks and the description it gives of the godly person. David writes, O Lord... Who shall sojourn in your tent? And who shall dwell in your holy hill? Now, psalms are poetry, and they have these poetic lines that rhyme in terms of ideas. So line one and line two in the psalm are echoes of one another. Who shall sojourn to, to the tent? And who shall dwell in God's holy hill? These are synonyms. To sojourn is to travel and ultimately to arrive in a place. Abraham is a sojourner, and he eventually lands in the, the place where God has placed aside for him. The people of Israel are sojourners in the land until they arrive in the place where God has put them. So to sojourn, the goal of sojourning or traveling, is eventually to land somewhere, to, to put your roots down somewhere, and ultimately to dwell in a certain location, to live there. And the location that one is sojourning to or dwelling in, in the question here, is the dwelling place of God. The tent, you might say, well, a tent is uh, a place where you go camping, you set up this little shack, that's not really a, a, a religious place. It's not a place where you go to worship God. 
But the tent here has, has envisioned the Old Testament tabernacle tent. It's not a tent like you and I would buy at the store and go camping with. It's a tent that the Israelites, with careful, painstaking detail, manufactured over the course of years, with the most precious gems and jewelry and gold and design and artwork that they had access to, so that they could establish this tent as they traveled through the wilderness. And when they would stop in a place, they would set up the tent so that they could go into the tent to worship God rightly. And ultimately, when the Israelites land in the promised land, they, they don't establish a tent. They, they establish a tabernacle, a place where, where they can ultimately rule and reign with God in a permanent building. And we would call that the temple, where, where the Israelites have built a permanent fixture of the tent which they once walked with. And so to sojourn to the tent is a poetic way of saying, who's going to go into the presence of God, which is where you would go to worship God, which is where you would go to honor him for his mercy. Or ultimately, who shall dwell in your holy hill? This has in view God's established location, that final tent location, which is the hill of Zion, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The idea is that God's holy hill is where his temple is, and his tent is that same location. It's where God dwells with his people. Now, if you're a Christian, you might be saying, well, God is everywhere. It's one of the attributes of God. He's, he's omnipresent. And yes, that is true. And yet even today, being all places and being able to be worshiped anywhere, he sets apart for himself unique spaces, unique locations, where we are to understand that he is being worshiped here in a different way than he's being worshiped elsewhere. You can, for instance, consider the gathering we're doing right now, which we do on a Sunday, in a, in a different building than we exist in other days of the week. Not because we think there's anything special or magical in a location like this, or that other churches think the same about the buildings they have, but it's because as Christians, we reserve a space in our lives, a place of holiness, of worship, where we say, this is where we go to worship the God that we serve. This is where we go to honor him, both with songs and with our minds and ultimately to fill our hearts so that we can live in this world as a people who's marked off by the fact that we worship this God. So to, to dwell in God's tent and to dwell on his holy hill is the psalmist asking the question, who is it that can worship God rightly? Who is it that can go to God and rightly praise his name? And as the psalm describes in verses 2 through halfway through verse 5, those who can worship God truly and rightly are those who actually have a life that matches their profession of faith. So verse 2 says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and who does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. I'll pause there. That's a high standard that's already been leveled in the psalm. Uh, the first line says, He who walks blamelessly. So who can, who can go and worship God rightly? The person who walks blamelessly. Now you might be sitting there and saying, well, we've already alluded to the fact that no one is blameless before God. So does this mean no one goes to worship God? And that could be a fair reading of the text, except for that God makes it possible for even those who are sinners to walk blamelessly before him. In the Old Testament, he did this through the sacrificial system. He accommodated himself to the weakness of mankind, and he made a way for people, even when they sinned, that if they were obedient to God and they obeyed by giving certain sacrifices to acknowledge their sin and their need for salvation, their need for God's mercy, that he would consider them blameless among his people. 
For instance, uh, the, the word blameless is not the same thing as sinless. And instead of making you turn to about 20 different places in Scripture, let me just read a couple of locations where this idea gets flushed out. Scripture says that blamelessness is a mark of God's people, not a mark of sinless perfection. In Scripture, Job, in Job 1.1, is considered blameless. The Scripture says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, the book of Job doesn't pretend like Job is perfect, but it does say that Job is blameless. It's a different thing. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 actually says Noah is blameless. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Now, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. The idea of blamelessness is one who walks with God. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses says to the people, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Now that's in the same letter that he's telling them, uh, you need to do these sacrifices when you commit these sins, and you need to do this in order to, re to recount this wrong that you've done. And if you, you hurt your neighbor in this way, you need to restore him in this way. He's not saying you're sinlessly perfect. He's saying you need to be blameless, meaning you need to walk rightly before God, obedient to all of his ways, including his ways of being mercifully made right. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel, who lives post the kings, uh, tells King Nebuchadnezzar the reason he was not killed is because my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king. Therefore, I have done no harm. So the idea in Daniel 6 is not that Daniel is sinless and perfect. The idea is that he's blameless, walking rightly before God. Similarly, in Luke chapter 1, even in the New Testament, Zechariah and Elizabeth are considered blameless. Luke chapter 1 verse 6 says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Or even listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as also in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. Do all of these things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that, it, that I did not run in vain, or labor over you in vain. So Paul seems to say that one of the reasons Christians work out being different from the world and walking righteously before God is because God has said you should be blameless before him. And the conclusion of this, this practice is that we would be right before God. Or consider one more, this is out of Ephesians chapter 3, or sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And how are, what are those blessings? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God saving us as believers is something that he does not so we can stay as we are, but something that he will then begin to work out a blamelessness and a holiness within us that will begin to shoot off into our lives. So that when the psalmist asks, the one says the one who is blameless can approach God, it means those who are God's people who also bear all the marks externally of being God's people. Now, blamelessness is, is one avenue of that, but Scripture also speaks about God's people as being holy. And you can see for this the entire book of Leviticus, but I'll just read for you two texts 
at Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 14, God says this to his people, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy so that I may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. And you might say, well, all of this is Old Testament language being holy, except that Peter, quoting Deuteronomy in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 13 says, we are to be sober-minded, setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us by the revelation of Christ as obedient children, not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but as him who has called us is holy, so we also ought to be holy. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The idea is, God is holy, he dwells amongst a people, and if God and this people are to dwell together, well, the people need to change. The people need to become holy. Now, the problem is, the people can't just wish to be holy. God needs to produce that within them. And even as the First uh, Peter text alludes to, uh, we must not be conformed to the passions of former ignorance, but as he who has called us is holy, so we also ought to be holy. And the idea is that God is the one who both is holy, calls us to be holy, and then works out that holiness within us. Blameless is, is one of the words that's used here in the text to describe the person who is right. But Psalm 15 uses other words, and all of this you could fit under the category of blamelessness. What does blamelessness look like? It is the one who does what is right, who speaks the truth in his heart. So it's someone who isn't just far away from God uh, and, and says theologically true things about God or knows the right answers to say when a Christian asks them a certain question. It is someone who's, whose life internally and externally, both in their heart and what they believe and their mouth and what they profess, matches up so that they speak true things in their heart. They're not saying one thing and believing another, and that would be hypocrisy. So that is what it means to walk blamelessly. Now, the blameless person is described also in negative terms, what they are not. And this is in verse 3 of the psalm. Who does not slander with his tongue, and who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So now it's not just describing a positive set of attributes. It's also telling us what a blameless person is not like. They are not a slanderer. Meaning they actually love God and serve him enough to control their tongue and how they speak. If you're a Christian, what you say matters quite a bit. What you say God cares about. How you speak about other people matters to God. And whether you speak what's true or what is false, or whether you speak things that are hurtful or, get, or kind and gracious and up, uplifting, those things matter greatly to God. Because you can't say to someone terrible things on one day or on a morning, and then go in that evening to church and worship God and pretend like it's all fine. To approach God rightly means your whole life, your speech and your conduct, worships him. So that your tongue does not uh, blaspheme someone who bears the image of God, and then you sing his praises with that same tongue later in the day or later in the week. The idea is we ought to walk in total perfection before our God. We do not do evil to our neighbors. The one who walks rightly to approach God faithfully is someone who loves their neighbor. This is what Jesus says in the New Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. You don't do evil to people around you, people who you associate with, because God says you are not allowed to. It doesn't matter if someone's going to catch you or if you're going to get away with it or you think there's a good chance of them not getting back at you for it. The idea is you do not do evil to someone because God says you're not allowed to. 
So as Christians, we are to be marked by all of these attributes, all of these character traits. Or, uh, the, the end of verse 3 elevates the slandering piece a little bit higher. It says, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, this is uh, admittedly a very difficult thing to translate, but the, the thrust is, on the one hand, you can offend God by slandering someone. And on the other hand, you can, you can equally offend God by listening to and taking up that slander, by hearing it, by, by not speaking out against it, by, by hearing something you shouldn't have heard, gossip or otherwise, and simply taking up that reproach against someone who's your friend. You listen to something you shouldn't have listened to, and you actually enjoy that kind of thing. So slander isn't just something you say, it's also what you hear. Now for those of you who work in, in the real world, uh, you recognize now how high the standard is for God to call his people unto himself. When he says you should be blameless before me, he has in view all of these things so that when you work your Monday through Friday job and you interact with people throughout the week, that should be through and through consistent with who you are as a Christian. You don't put on one mask on Sunday and another the other six days of the week. Verse 4 is a difficult verse, but we'll get through it together. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. I just want you to sit and look at those words for a little bit. Often Christians try to soften this by saying, uh, we are to love the sinner and hate the sin that they commit. And I think that's a good thing to say, but it's not quite what verse 4 is saying. Verse 4 says, the eyes of a vile person is, in the eyes of a righteous person, a vile person is despised. Not the actions of a vile person. Now you might say, what about Jesus in the New Testament where he says you're to love your enemies? That is true. Absolutely. The way John Piper says it is you can love and despise someone. This is a complex idea. Sin does not exist as something out there in the world that gets inside of people. Sin is something that is inside of people that bleeds out of them. So when a person who is walking with God, obeying his commands, and walking according to his pattern of life, sees someone who is fully given over to sin, they would despise that, that lifestyle. Vile is not a term for the average person who's sinning. This is someone who is hardened in their sin. So in the same way, we would think it would be morally right for us to say, well, if someone is a serial killer, they've wholly given themselves over to that lifestyle, we should despise their actions. Not just that they do that, but also them who has embraced this activity to kill other people. As a society, we make moral judgments like that all the time, to despise not only the activities of people, but also people themselves sometimes. But as Christians, we're supposed to both do that and also love those very same people. And you need to have the discernment to do both of those things. To love someone means you speak the truth to them. And yet you, you can do that without actually loving the person or the lifestyle that they're participating in. That's a very complex idea. And yet as Christians, it is possible for us to do so. One of the other commentators on the text says it this way. He says, here the, the language is harsh and true, but a Christian has a clear-cut allegiance that they love the things of God and the people of God in a way that they do not love the things of the world or the people within the world. Now we are to love those who are in the world as fellow image bearers of Christ, 
But that does not mean we love every action and activity and even the personalities which embrace all of those things. This is what it means to be set apart. And then he uh, elevates it even further, and now he's going to turn personal with those who are believers. If you want to approach God, uh, here's a descriptor for you. You swear to your own hurt, and you don't change that. You take an oath, and then as you're being faithful to that oath, you recognize you're going to catch the short end of this deal. You keep it anyway. A Christian is the kind of person who doesn't just keep their word when it's convenient to keep their word. They keep their word even at their own hurt, even at their own expense. They would keep their word because their God is a God who keeps his word. And so we ought to be a keep people who keep our word as well. We would, we would say we we're going to do something and we would do it, especially when it hurts. Anyone can do, do what they promise to do if it's convenient for them. My, my cable company continues to give me internet and, and reception if I continue to hold up my end of the bargain. They keep their end, I keep my end, we're all good. But the idea of a, a Christian who follows in the pattern of God with his people is that even when it's to your own detriment, you follow up on your end of the bargain. Well, that's something that the world has a hard time conceptualizing. Because every relationship we know of in the world is usually based on a give this, get that kind of thing. As Christians, we're called to be a people who gives and who loves and who is obedient to their word, even when it costs them greatly and dearly, because that's exactly how God relates to his people. He loves them at great cost to himself, even when he gets nothing in return. So we are a people who swear even to our own hurt, and we don't change that path. And then the psalmist finishes this description of the blameless person in these words, who does not put out his money at interest and who does not take a bribe against the innocent. So a righteous person, a blameless person, is one who's not just blameless in terms of their actions, what they say, and what they believe, but even down to their wallet, they love God with all that they are. They don't take a bribe against innocent people, meaning they're not going to do something sinful just because it profits them in the end. Or they're not going to loan someone money at interest. Uh, the, the idea here is not that loaning money with interest is somehow sinful, but the idea is uh, the, the concept of usury, which is to loan someone an interest which is unsustainably, unsustainably high. In the Old Testament, there were rich people in the community, and there were poor people in the community, just like we have today. And one of the great dangers with being poor is if you fell on hard times and you had no safety net to fall back to, your hope was that other people in the community would take care of you. So in the law, in the Old Testament, the people are told, you should give money to someone in need, a brother or sister, but don't do that so that you can make a profit on the back end of it. Don't take advantage of someone's uh, ill fortune. Don't take advantage of someone who is suffering greatly, who has lost a crop or a harvest or a family or whatever. Don't lend them money so that you can make a profit out of that. You lend them money, and perhaps you get that money in return some point down the line if they're able to pay you back. But the idea is you don't look for people who are weak and vulnerable and lend them money to turn a profit on them. Would that the government of the United States learn something like this with lending to people uh, who cannot pay it back. The idea is that God's people are marked by God's standards of morality, which includes righteousness even in our financial dealings. Christians uh, are actually very good at being morally obedient to God, often very good at being theologically accurate towards God. 
And yet, somehow, our finances make an escape away from all of that obedience and find themselves in a category unto themselves. But finances and actions and what we believe and how we treat other people, all of it falls under the category of obedience towards God. And so here is the description, and you might be saying, well, that's quite a high standard that has just been raised. How can anyone attain this standard of worship before God? Well, the implication is, not unless God makes a way for us to attain this, can we attain it. One of the mistakes we can fall into is we can see this long laundry list of things we ought to be like, and we can say, well, I'll get a habit tracker, I'll get discipline, I'll listen to a couple of motivational speeches, and I'll be ready to go tomorrow. To treat people well, to love God in my heart, to do all these things perfectly, and that works until the motivation tanks or until you actually are who you are, and you sin once again, you mistreat someone, you, you say something wicked in your heart, whatever it is, that is not a way to approach God. The approach is not to look at yourself and to say, well, I'm going to do what he commands. The approach is a little bit more like the theologian Augustine would say, God can command whatever he wants from us, and then we need to pray for the grace that he would give us the ability to fulfill what he commands. From beginning to end, Scripture says that we fall short of this standard, that Christ actually lives his life sinlessly and perfectly in, in a way that we could not, actually being obedient to all of these requirements and approaching God. And then when he buys a people unto himself, it's not just so that we can theologically say we identify with Christ. It's also so that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works within us to make us holy before him. So that when Peter tells the people in the New Testament, be holy as I am holy, He's not saying you need to get yourself together. He's saying you need to rely on God's grace and be obedient to all that he commands. It is not as though if you become holy, let's say, in 10 years as a believer, or you, you, you make that growth in holiness, that you can somehow turn around and say, that's because I've got my life together. The idea is that God's grace is, a boundif is bountifully working within you to make you different, to make you clean, to make you new. When God makes us holy... It is his prerogative to do so, not our own. That does not, by the way, remove our responsibility to be holy as God is holy. God is, in fact, holy. He calls us to be so, and yet he makes it possible for us to do that by means of his grace and his spirit accompanying our, our imperfections. So the conclusion of this that we should arrive at is that God provides with grace the need that we have to be holy among him. And the New Testament envisions, envisions a conclusion to human history in Revelation 21 where the dwelling place of God is with man. So that when the question here is asked, who shall dwell on the holy hill of God, the answer should be all of those who are with him, one with him, will be united with him in, in life. In, in our dwelling will be with him. Or more accurately, his dwelling place will be with us. And for that to be the goal or the trajectory, one of two things has to happen. Either we have to change how we behave before God, or God has to change how he behaves towards us. But there's a chasm between us and God as it currently stands. The answer for the Christian should be, I will aspire to be blameless before my maker all the days of my life, to walk in holiness and righteousness and obedience before him. And that when I fall and I sin... I will do what he commands and I will confess my sins before him and trust on his merciful grace to atone for my sins, to make a way for me. 
If you're a Christian, being blameless does not mean pretending like you don't sin. Being blameless means you're reliant on God's grace, even in your sin, to atone for your wickedness and your weakness and to make you clean once again. That's the entire point of the book of Leviticus is that the Israelites will screw up in all of these ways. And yet God is resolved to make a way for them by his gracious condensation, uh, uh, living with them. He, he, he makes himself accessible to his people. And so it is in the New Testament with Christ. The way Derek Kidner says this idea is this. The qualities that this psalm describes are those that God creates within a man, not those that he finds within a man. They're the kind of things that God produces in someone who follows him, not the kind of things that God asks for before you can approach him. And this is exactly what Jesus is for us in the New Testament. He doesn't wait for us to get our act together. He actually makes himself accessible to us. He makes the people clean unto himself. And then he calls us to be holy on the back end of his gracious love for us. And here's the assurance of the psalm at the end of verse 5. He who does all these things shall never be moved. Psalm 1 says, The wicked are like chaff driven to and fro by the wind. They are moved all over the place. Psalm 16, verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. Therefore, I will not be shaken. Psalm 15 says, The one who walks according to God's ways and who trusts in his gracious accommodation towards us, he who does all these things shall never be moved. God is our refuge and our fortress, the only hope that we have to dwell in holiness before him, the only hope that we have to approach him in worship, the only hope that we will have when he is judging us on the last day. And all of those who trust in his, uh, his accessibility will never be moved before him. That is the hope for us who are Christians, and that is the invitation for those who are not, that God is still holding out his hand, making himself accessible so that you might have fellowship with him as well. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for your word to us, which is piercing and difficult. And yet, Lord, it is by your grace that we hear all these truths. For you are a God who is holy and righteous. And we are a people who aspire to be just that. And so would you, by the grace of your spirit, make us clean. Wash us by the blood of your son. Cleanse us by his perfect sacrifice and work out within us salvation so we would be a people marked off from the world, set apart for you, obedient to your ways, so we would be true to these words, walking blamelessly before you. We pray this in your name. Amen.